Welcome to this episode of Against the Mountains of Madness. I'm your host, Jason Rennie. And I'm John C. Wright. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about the desolation of time, which will make sense soon enough. But before we start, please, if you enjoy the show, like, share and subscribe. Uh, It helps get the word out and maybe one day we can do more of this. Okay, John, the desolation of time. What's the that? reason why <laughs> the reason why I, I speak of the desolation of time is because sometime in the Victorian era, science, the study of geology particularly, became aware that the Earth was far older than had previously been imagined. Uh, before that, everyone was basically a young Earth creationist, what we now call a young Earth creationist. Uh, but the geological strata seemed to be uh, indicative of processes far older. And so man slowly became aware that he occupied merely a very small sliver of time uh, in terms of how long the Earth had been occupied by monstrous dinosaurs and other creatures that were, that were extinct. That kind of preyed on the human imagination, especially on the imagination of science fiction writers, who were just getting started at about that time. Uh, things like The Lost Continent, uh, The Lost World of Professor Challenger, written by uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. uh, reflect... The, and also the various lost races stories of uh, H. Ryder Haggard reflect that awareness, that kind of uh, uh, vertigo, I'll say, mm-hmm. that, that the, uh, the public was becoming aware of. Now, there's some debate among science fiction readers as to what is the officially first science fiction book. Some people want to go all the way back to Lucian of Somoza or to the flight to the moon uh, that is portrayed on the back of a hippogriff in uh, Orlando Furioso by Ariosto and so on and so forth. With all due respect for the people who are trying to make Dante into a science fiction writer, I myself think that that science fiction is the mythology of a scientific age. I think a okay. science fiction has to be concerned with the, 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 in, the effect, not just of the scientific revolution, but of the revolution of our idea of where mankind stands in reference to the center of the universe. Uh, we no longer think we're in the middle. Okay, In the Middle Ages, we thought we were in the... Te- technically in the middle of the, the universe, in the middle of the Ptolemaic universe. Now, well, I should, I should, I got to hasten to add. At the bottom. At the bottom. <laughs> at the middle of the universe was the, was the trash can, was the jail cell. Yeah. Because the gravity pulled all the heavy things to the, to the middle. And if you read Dante, the devil himself is in the exact center point of the, uh, of all the gravity, all the, all the gravity effects of the earth, which is right in the middle of the Ptolemaic universe. Mm. So, but, it was still as disorienting as a, a circus, as a, a carnival ride, to find out that you're not in the middle, but you're on the edge, and you're spinning around in a giant circle. And there's, there's circles within circles. You know, you, you, you get dizzy yep. thinking about how it, how it operates. The people from Narnia who live in a nice, safe, flat world have to wonder how you can cling to a ball and go spinning madly through vastnesses of space. And the true astronomical uh, distances of astronomy hence the name astronomical, became yeah. kind of impressed on the public consciousness. And so people started to speculate about things like life on other planets. And that's where science fiction had its, had its, had its origins. Now, oh, I myself... Go ahead. Point of order. Uh, the, ancient ahead. Gre- the ancient Greeks knew the Earth was as a point in the heavens. I mean... Certainly. They, they thought it was at the middle, but they, had a, they, had a, they probably would have been surprised how vast the universe was. But they didn't think it was as small as normally portrayed. They knew they knew yeah. it was really, really big. Like they knew they it was knew it enormously was, vast. 
they knew it was in effect infinite. The same, the same, basically the same thing we know. They just thought the stars were equidistant from the Earth in a, in a, in a big sphere. Mm. That's that's the only, and that's the way it looks. So that's a perfectly natural, and perfectly <laughs> scientific assumption. Yeah, they could not detect any parallax, nor could we until very recently. Mm. You see, so uh, uh, you're right. You're right to bring up just, the point of just order. Just to say, just I, to say, no, you no, know, no, you are completely correct because I do not want to feed into the mythology that the ancients had some sort of uh, foolish or unenlightened view. Mm. But I, but I would make the argument that science fiction takes its uh, inspiration from the Copernican uh, vertigo, from the, from the disarray, from the amazing confusion of finding out that, that uh, things are bigger than you imagined and further away and not in the middle. And it, it's, it's, it's one of those fun things like standing on your head and looking at the world as if it's upside down. Mm. That's what science fiction, when it does its job, is, is supposed to help you do. You see, it yeah. can be misused like anything else, but that's what it's for. Now, H.G. Wells wrote uh, adventure stories starring uh, uh, Fantastic Machines, uh, mm -hmm. Five Weeks in a Balloon, The Nautilus, The Columbia Ed Gun, uh, the, the Albatross, other things like that. Uh, he is the father of what we call hard science fiction, of, of, uh, of engineer science fiction. Yep. But H.G. Wells was the guy who took the, the scientific uh, worldview, the secular worldview, mm -hmm. and said, what if we extrapolate this to see what the social implications are? And so he wrote uh, War of the Worlds, which was basically, what if England were invaded by the Martians in the same way that the Englishmen invaded New Zealand? And we had about as much chance against, the, against a, a superior race as they have against us. You know, uh, it's, And it's a fascinating study, and it, it played in with the there were numerous future war stories that were being published in the Times, you know, and in the Strand magazine mm. at that time. It wasn't that different. Have you seen uh, Have you seen Futurama's take on that, where the aliens come and they're defeated by the humble Tyrannosaurus Rex that's <laughs> around <and> attacking them? <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen that one, but I did see the Mars Attacks uh, movie based on the bubblegum cards, where they're defeated by country music. Yes, and of course I approve Wonderful of country music film. and I'm glad. That it's the guardian between us and these <laughs> alien brain invaders. You know, so. Yes, that's a fun uh, film too. But Wells is the guy who came up with the idea that the Martians are, are little shrimpy men with big brains. Though he did not describe them in that way, he thought that he he looked at the Darwinian theory, which was brand new in his day, uh, and said that if men are descended from ape men who are descended from apes, the next step is going to be slimmer and smarter and have uh, more adaptable and larger hands, you know, because the hands and the brain is what he thought was the distinguishing feature that severed uh, apes from men. There was a Outer Limits episode, I think it was called The Sixth Finger, that, um, yes, explored this, and they evolved, they, they using, using technology, they evolved a guy um, a million years into the future or something. It's been a while since I've seen it, and he had a sixth finger and a really big head. <laughs> yeah, that's that's Wells's idea, mm. and everyone from everyone from uh, Buck Rogers onward has. Whenever you see super intelligent alien, little, little shrimpy blue man, the the, the guardians of Oa, every you know basically yeah. everyone in outer space who's, a, who's supposed to be futuristic is depicted as small and puny with a big head because big head? of that idea, because mm. of that Darwinian idea basically. Uh, nowadays, there are people called transhumanists who maybe we should. We can we can come back to and discuss them in more detail later. 
who think that we can make ourselves that way, either by biotechnology or by downloading our, our brain engrams into a computer, into an M5 computer like on Star Trek. Good luck with that. But my point is I want to make the challenging remark that The Time Machine by H.G. Wells is the first truly science fictional story because it's the first one that deals with the geologic grasp of time with okay. the, the thing that makes the science fictional worldview, the secular worldview, so startling and so challenging to the, to the readership. And I'm not saying all of science fiction is meant to be startling or challenging, but that's, mm. that's one of the core appeals. That's why people like to read it when they're young, when they're adolescents, so they can come across ideas they haven't come across before. Mm. You know, so now, in his view of the universe, uh, uh, he used his time machine with the very simple uh, um, but all kind of magical <laughs> idea that traveling through time was going to be just as easy to accomplish as traveling through the yep. third dimension in a balloon or something. You know. Now, obviously, he never explains how a time machine is supposed to work. Or, or, uh, uh, and he does a little bit of hand waving to explain yep. why you can't see a time machine in motion. Uh, you know, like when you come into the room and it's about to land, you should see it because it should be traveling from the past into the future. But we'll give him that. It's 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 a clever idea. Uh, the the time travel spoiler warning for a hundred year old book. The time traveler goes into the far future, into the golden age of the far future, mm. and uh, encounters what he thinks of are uh, people who seem to be living. Lives of complete peace and contentment, with no disease, no war, no crime, no no confusion. Uh, yeah. But they're all kind of small and helpless. And uh, uh, when one of them when one of them falls in the river and is going to drown, the others merely stand on the shore, not doing anything. Hmm. See, they don't seem to be they don't seem to be men. Uh, and he uh, he finds out later that these are not these are not the only humans that that have survived. But there's a subterranean group of uh, humans called Morlocks, who yep. are uh, uh, cannibal murderers, who are herding the, uh, the, the humans, the Eloi, uh, and using them as food animals. And also providing them with food, and also taking care of them the way you take care of a herd. You see. And he, these time travelers speculates that this is the outcome of social division in England in the Victorian age, that apparently the, case, the class system will, will be maintained over a sufficient number of geological eras that it will have an evolutionary effect, making the ruling class weak and puny, and the working class uh, subterranean, uh, uh, you know, and uh, and, and um, uh, cannibalistic. Uh, so it's a scary and spooky story, but the 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 time traveler then leaves the golden age and travels into the the far future, and he, he basically sees the end of of time, and the reason why, or the end of the earth, and the reason why this is interesting to me is because what he sees is not a culmination of a golden age, is not a utopia, but a desolation, but a wasteland. And uh, it is my contention that if you have a secular worldview, if you go far enough into the future, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see the desolation. You see? Mm -hmm. Now, I myself wrote a book called The Golden Age, where I, I predicted the opposite, that we would actually spread out you know, and conquer the universe. But if you think about it, the universe is really, really big. And the idea of conquering is really is really absurd. Uh, now, here's what's funny about H.G. Wells. In the same way that in philosophy, one generation of philosophers will debate the ideas of the previous generation, also in science fiction books, one generation of science fiction writers will debate and discuss the ideas of the previous generation. And C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Pruralendra, 
mm-hmm. which in my opinion was a was an answer to was it was a a, a, a refutation from or a, um, a counter argument to the desolation of time as portrayed in the time machine by H.G. Wells. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when uh, in the in Primrelendra, uh, Ransom is uh, is carried in a glass coffin by angels to the uh, Edenic planet, the, the Eden planet of, of Venus, mm-hmm. which unlike in real life where it's a as a sulfur litten magma strewn hellscape is was a, uh, a a world of waves and water and floating islands a paradise mm. and floating islands and there was a devil on on venus that came from earth on in a spaceship named weston the unmanned who is possessed by the life force i'm not going to say it's the devil but it's the devil who's trying to tempt the green woman who was the eve of venus is the green woman who has mm. been given an order by maladil who's Jehovah, the God, not to take spend a night on the fixed land because all the land on Venus is, is floating except for mm. one island, which is forbidden. And uh, Ransom is uh, silently commanded to put a stop to this, uh, and he finds he cannot outdebate the devil. He cannot outsmart the devil by words, so he decides to kill him. And it's uh, it's uh, keep in mind World War II was going on at the time on Earth when he was when the book was being written. So yeah, uh, uh, the the kind of genial uh, uh, desire not to engage the devil physically uh, was not present in the generation for which the book was written. Even if you and I might might think he should have, I don't know, taken him to court first or something. <laughs> uh, now after the deed is done, uh, ransom is is rewarded as you would expect because he's he's basically saved the world from the fall. Hmm. Okay. He's he's all, he's the Christ figure basically of Venus, as as astonishing as that sounds, as as arrogant as that sounds. I don't think Lewis intentionally meant that, but but nonetheless, there it is. He's the guy who saved the world from the devil. Uh, and he sees a vision. The 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 Eldil, the the supernatural beings that live in the deep heaven, uh, come and visit him, and show him because he's he's disturbed at what he had to do. Okay, yep. and he wonders as to why this world's fate is different from his world's which went all dark and horrible, you know? And why was it necessary? The and silent he sees planet. a vision. What's that? The silent planet. Yes, in this background, the Earth is, is quarantined from the rest of our ball, the, system, the solar system. And no communication is permitted from Earth outside and, or back in. So it's called the silent planet, Fulcandra, uh, mm. because it's, it's, we're, not, we're, we're not supposed to go out into outer space. And I should mention that uh, Arthur C. Clarke uh, remember I said there was kind of a debate between generations? Arthur C. Clarke wrote a counter-counter argument in 2001, The Space Odyssey, where he thought venturing into space was the natural next step for not just the physical evolution of mankind, but also the spiritual evolution. Whereas C.S. Lewis thought that if, you, if mankind went into space uh, and we were still mankind, we would bring our sins with us. Yeah, well. You so you can decide between yourself, between whether you think 2001, The Space Odyssey, or Pre-Relender is a more realistic vision of the of the far future. Uh, the part, the, both 2001 A Space Odyssey of Arthur C. Clarke and uh, Childhood's End deals with the same idea that the future will bring will bring mankind into a position where evolution will make them uh, no longer quite human. That, that there'll be some sort of supernatural, some sort of star child, some sort of supernatural being, some sort of energy being, which is basically a metaphor for an angel. Uh, and then we'll get there by our own efforts, uh, or, or with some help from more highly advanced uh, monolith-building aliens, perhaps. 
that will be evolved up to the next highest stage. But the next highest stage will be incommunicatable to us the same way we cannot have communion with apes. Now again, that strikes me as being a desolate view. I would go so far as to propose that Arthur C. Clarke joins with H.G. Wells in proposing that time leads to a desolation, leads to a wasteland. You see. But oddly, when Ransom has saved Venus, the, the angels come and speak to him, and he sees a vision of the universe that is a, a, a great, not, not an empty chaos, not a wasteland, but a great dance, where all the stars and the men and the animals and all the worlds, Venus and Earth and Mars and, and, and uh, worlds beyond, both living and unliving, uh, are all part of one huge moving pattern uh, organized by an infinite and loving mind. And uh, it's a rather stirring. The angels say, The edge of each nature borders on that whereof it contains no shadow or similitude. Of many points, one line. Of many lines, one shape. Of many shapes, one solid body. Of many senses and thoughts, one person. Of three persons, himself. As the circle to the sphere, so are the ancient worlds that needed no redemption to the world wherein he was born and died. As a point is to a line, so is that world to the far fruits of this redeeming, of its redeeming. Blessed be he. Uh, they're speaking poetically about Earth's relationship to Mars, which was an earlier world that never fell, mm -hmm. and Mars' relationship to the outer worlds of, of Jupiter and Saturn, which have no life on them. And they're saying that those are like circles compared to the sphere of the Earth, and that Venus is actually like a hypersphere, it's like a four-dimensional. They continue. And yet the circle is not less round than the sphere, and the sphere is, at, is the home and fatherland of circles. Infinite multitudes of circles lie enclosed in every sphere, and if they spoke, they would say, for us were the spheres created. Let no mouth open to gainsay them. Blessed be he. The peoples of the ancient worlds who never sinned, for whom he never came down, are the people for whose sake the low worlds were made. This is again a reference to, to Mars, which in his mm -hmm. background is not, never fell. For though the healing of what was wounded and the straightening of what was bent is a new dimension of glory, yet the straight was not made that it might be bent, nor the whole that it might be wounded. The ancient peoples are at the center. Blessed be he. All which is not itself the great dance was made in order that he might come down into it. In the fallen world, he prepared for himself a body that was united with the dust and made it, the dust, glorious forever. This is the end and final cause of all creating and the sin whereby he came to be called fortunate and the world where this was enacted is the center of worlds. Blessed be he. The tree that was planted in that world has ripened in this. The fountain that sprang with mingled blood and life in the dark world flows here with life only. And, the, mm. and, and they go on and, and describe ever larger, uh, ever larger connections between all the worlds. Let me read one more passage, and then I'll... Then I'll no, sure. And now, by a transition which he did not notice, it seemed that what had begun as a speech was turned into sight, or into something that can be remembered only if it were seen. He thought he saw the great dance. It seemed to be woven out of the intertwining undulation of many chords or bands of light, leaping over and under one another mutually embraced in arabesques and flower-like subtleties. Each figure, as he looked at it, became the master figure or focus of the whole spectacle, by means of which his eye distangled all else and brought it into unity, only to be itself entangled when he looked at to what he had taken for a mere marginal decorations and found that there also the same hegemony was claimed, and the claim made good. Yet the former pattern was not thereby dispossessed, but finding in its new subordination 
a significance greater than that which it had abdicated. He could also see wherever the ribbons or serpents of light intersected minute corpuscles of momentary brightness, and he knew somehow that these particles were the secular generalities of which history tells, peoples, institutions, climates of opinion, civilizations, arts, sciences, and the like, ephemeral coruscations that piped their short song and vanished. The ribbons or cords themselves, in which millions of corpuscles lived and died, were things of some different kind, and at first he could not say what. But he knew that in the end, most of them were individual entities. If so, the time in which the great dance proceeds is very unlike time as we know it. Some of the thinner and more delicate cords were beings that we call short-lived, flowers and insects, a fruit or a storm of rain, and once a wave of the sea. Others were such things that we think of as long-lasting, crystals, mountains, rivers, or even stars. Far above these in girth and luminosity and flashing with colors from beyond our spectrum were the lines of personal beings, and yet as different from one another in splendor as all of them were from the previous class. But not all the chords were individuals. Some were universal truths or universal qualities. It did not surprise him, then, to find that both these and the persons were both chords and both stood together against the mere atoms of generality which lived and died in the clashing of the streams. But afterwards, when he came back to Earth, he wondered. The whole figure of these enamored and interanimated circling were suddenly revealed as the mere superficies of a far vaster pattern in four dimensions. Mm -hmm. And that and that figure as the boundary of yet others in other worlds, till suddenly as the movement grew yet swifter, the interweavings grew yet more ecstatic, the relevance of it all to all yet more intense, as dimension was added to dimension, and that part of him which could reason and remember was dropped further and further behind, that part of him which saw even then, at the very zenith of complexity, complexity was eaten up and faded, as thin white clouds fade into the hard blue burning of the sky, and a simplicity beyond all comprehension, ancient and young as spring, illimitable, pellucid, drew him with cords of infinite desire into his own stillness. That is the vision of time. <laughs> that is the vision of time seen by Ransom when he uh, visits, when he has a vision of the allness, the cosmic all of the universe as a great dance. I'll, I'll read one more line. Sure. He went up into such quietness, he went up into such a quietness, a privacy and a freshness, that at the very moment when he stood farthest from our ordinary mode of being, he had a sense of stripping off encumbrances and awakening from a trance and coming to himself. And I should say this whole vision is, is in response to Ransom asking questions of the great Eldil as to why the horrible events, the fall of man on earth, uh, were necessary, uh, and why the uh, and why the horrible events on Venus were necessary. Hmm. And his answer is not quite an answer that you can put into words. His answer is not quite an understanding, but he does see the pattern of which all things are, are part. And I think Lewis here is trying to put into words a mystical vision that anyone who's ever had a, a true mystical vision sees the unity and the complexity of the universe all in one, all in one uh, uh, pinpoint. Like a uh, like a, a, a raindrop reflecting all the stars as it falls through the night sky, you say. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if I can impose even further on your patience, I'd like to read H.G. Wells's similar passage where the time traveler sees the end of the uh, the end of life on Earth, and to show because I don't know any other way to show so clearly what the contrast is between the idea of eternity of time being a 
a luminous dance where all the parts are both the center and the periphery, and this. So, so may I? Sure. This is the time travel speaking. All trace of the moon had vanished. The circling of stars, growing slower and slower, had given place to creeping points of light. I should pause and explain. He's on the time machine. He's just fled from the Golden Age where the Morlocks eat the Eloi. And as he, as he maneuvers his machine, he sees the entire panorama of the heavens at, at, at rapid speed. The, sunlight, the sun becomes a, a, a rainbow of fire crossing through the midst, and the stars, the stars circle like a wheel in, in an instant to his eyes. So as he's going forward, he, he stops seeing the moon flickering through the sky. So, again, all trace of the moon had vanished. The circling of the stars growing ever slower and slower had given place to creeping points of light. At last, some time before I stopped, the sun, red and very large, halted motionless upon the horizon, a vast dome glowing with a dull heat, and now and then suffering a momentary extinction. At one time, it had, for a little while, glowed more brilliantly again, but it speedily reverted to its sullen red heat. I perceived this by slowing the slowing down of its rising and setting, that the work of the tidal drag was done. Earth had come to rest with one face to the sun, even as, in our own time, the moon faces the earth. Very cautiously, for I remembered my, uh, for I remembered my former... Uh, very cautiously, I began to reverse my motion. Slower and slower went the circling hands, until the thousands, one, seemed motionless, and the daily one no longer seemed a mere spinning mist upon the scale. Still slower, the dim outlines of a desolate beach were visible. I should mention that last is a reference to his control panel, where, where the days and mm -hmm. thousands of days were, were, spinning, were spinning dials. I stopped very gently and sat upon the time machine, looking around. The sky was no longer blue. Northeastward it was an inky black, and out of the blackness shone brightly and steadily the pale white stars. Overhead it was a deep Indian red and starless, and southeastward it grew brighter to a glowing scarlet where, cut by the horizon, lay the huge hull of the sun, red and motionless. The rocks about me were of a reddish color, and all trace of life that I could see at first was the intense green vegetation that covered every projecting point of the southeastern face. It was the same rich green that one sees on forest moss or on the lichen in caves, plants which, like these, grow in perpetual twilight. The machine was standing on a sloping beach. The sea stretched away to the southwest to rise up sharp to a sharp, bright horizon against the wan sky. There were no breakers and no waves, for not a breath of wind was stirring. Only a slight oily swell rose and fell like a gentle breathing and showed that the eternal sea was still moving and living. And along the margin, where the water sometimes broke, was a thick incrustation of salt, pink under the lurid sky. There was a sense of oppression in my head, and I noticed that I was breathing very fast. The sensation reminded me of my only experience of mountaineering, and from that I judged the air to be more rarefied than it is now. Far away up the desolate slope, I heard a harsh scream and saw a thing like a huge white butterfly go slanting and fluttering up into the sky and, circling, disappear over some low hillocks beyond. The sound of its voice was so dismal that I shivered and seated myself more firmly upon the machine. Looking around me again, I saw quite near that what I'd taken to be a reddish mass of rock was moving slowly toward me. Then I saw what was really a monstrous crab-like creature. Can you imagine a crab as large as yonder table, with many legs moving slowly and uncertainly, its big claws swaying, its long antenna, like Carter's whips, waving and feeling, and its stalked eyes gleaming at you on either side of its metallic front? Its back was corrugated and ornamented with ungainly bosses, and a greenish incrustation blotched it here and there. I could see the many palps of its complicated mouth flickering and feeling as it moved. I stared at the sinister apparition crawling toward me, and I felt a tickling on my cheek, as though a fly had lighted there. 
I tried to brush it away with my hand, but in a moment it returned almost immediately and came by another came by my ear. I struck at it and caught something thread-like. It was drawn swiftly out of my hand. With a frightful qualm, I turned and saw that I had grasped the antenna of another monster crab that stood just behind me. Its evil eyes were wriggling on their stalks, and its mouth was alive with appetite, and its vast, ungainly claws, smeared with algel slime, were descending upon me. In a moment, my hand was on the lever, and I had placed a month between myself and these monsters. But I was still on the same beach, and I saw them distinctly now as soon as I had stopped. Dozens of them seemed to be crawling here and there in the somber light, among the foliage sheets of the intense green. I cannot convey the sense of abominable desolation that hung over the world. So I traveled, stopping ever and again, with great strides of a thousand years or more, drawn on by the mystery of Earth's fate, watching with a strange fascination the sun grow larger and duller in the western sky as the life of the old Earth ebbed away. At last, more than 30 million years hence, the huge red-hot dome of the sun had come to an obscure, nearly a tenth part of the darkling heavens. Then I stopped it once more, for the crawling multitude of crabs had disappeared, and the red beach, save for its green liverworts and lichens, seemed lifeless, and now it was flecked with white. A bitter cold assailed me, where rare white flakes ever again came eddying down. To the northeastward, against the glare of the snow lay under the starlight of the stable sky, and I could see an undulating crest of hillocks, pinkish-white. There were fringes of ice along the sea margin and drifting masses further out, but the main expanse of all that salt ocean, all bloody under the eternal sunset, was still unfrozen. I looked about me to see if any trace of animal life remained. A certain indefinable apprehension still kept me in the saddle of the machine, but I saw nothing, either in the earth, or sky, or sea. That is That's the depressing vision <laughs> of, of the far future. That's bleak and horrible. Well, I've read a few um, future histories where um, yeah, humankind continues to exist in some form or another. And I definitely read one, but I can't remember the title. I can't remember who wrote it. Um, where humans at the end of time, uh, as the big crunch approaches, are trying to... They know their end is nigh, but they're trying to work out what they can send forward through the big crunch into the next big bang and into the next universe. So some part of them lives on. Um, even, even, even beyond the end of this universe. But it feels so bleak. I mean, if 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 there's nothing beyond this life, then I guess you can have some continuation as part of the species going forward. But even that is destined to end. Ev everything is destined to end, and eventually it will be as if we never existed. That's. That seems to be the secular vision of the future, unavoidably. That's, that's the Wellesian vision of the future, where all of mankind's accomplishments, even the invention of the time machine, lead to nothing. Hmm. I mean, there's no, on, on, the, on the desolate beach, there's no trace of the, of the cities that mankind reared. There's no, there's no bones left in the ground. There's nothing. Everything's forgotten good and evil. Eventually, and, yeah, eventually all the protons will decay and there will be nothing. <laughs> right, right. If you go far even enough if, if, And if Stephen Hawking is correct, even the black holes decay, hmm. you see. Uh, and then that's it. Now, there are people who believe it, it's, that it's scientifically feasible that the big, uh, 
that instead of the heat death of the universe, which is what you get when entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, rears itself in infinite triumph. I have, a, I have a personal saying, which is, entropy always wins in the end, okay? At least in the secular world, in the material world, uh, entropy always wins. So the heat uh, I myself yep. wrote a, a utopian story called The Golden Age, where I proposed an extremely powerful and wealthy commonwealth would fill the solar system. But even if mankind could somehow download its brains into much more durable bodies or computer mainframes or through biotechnology uh, give themselves uh, uh, glorified bodies that were incapable of harm, time will run out. You'll, you'll run out of energy. You'll run out of resources. Entropy will win. Mm. There's no way around it. Now, if the big crunch, there's two theories of the universe. One is that the gravity will eventually uh, halt and reverse the Hubble expansion of the universe, mm. which is the expansion where all the galaxies are flying away from each other at apparently ever-increasing rates the further you get, uh, farther away from us. And uh, that big, and the big the, bang we get from uh, a Jesuit astronomer, I think. Yes, a Jesuit astronomer is the one who, who says the big bang. But the big bang is, is the alternate theory to the steady state theory. Hmm. The steady state theory is that the universe expands and more matter is created uh, and continues to expand. The the Big Bang theory, which is now the which is now the standard model, says that everything came from a sub microscopic pinpoint of all the matter and energy in the universe exploding outward from 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 nothing, uh, and then differentiating itself into the four fundamental forces of the of uh, uh, electromagnetics on, yeah. and so on and so forth. Uh, now, the end of the universe, the eschatology. There's two or three basic theories. One is that it ends in the heat death of the universe. It just continues to expand. It loses energy. It turns into a big night. The end. All protons decay. Yep. Everything ends in a, in a, in a fog where every mo every molecule is every atom, every subatomic atom is so far apart from every other that not that there's no interaction ever again. Uh, one mm. is the big rip theory, which is that the stars uh, fly apart from each other so far that time and space itself comes to an end. I'm not sure mm. I understand that theory, even though I used it in a, in a book of mine. Um, my understanding, my understanding of that, my understanding of that is, uh, as the universe continues to expand and accelerates, eventually everything will be moving apart from everything so fast. Nothing, everything will be moving apart from everything else at faster than the speed of light, even the atoms and the universe. As as it progresses, the universe will get the visible universe will get smaller as things move beyond the horizon of what we can see until. Eventually, nothing can see anything at the point at the level of an atom. Every every subatomic particle will well, be isolated from every other. Ex exactly, yes. Which is slightly different to the heat death, which is just where entropy, where everything is, um, the the final energy state of the universe is low, low grade heat that's you can't do any work with. Yeah, a three degree background radiation where no where no useful work can be done. Hmm. Yeah, or lower, cooler than that maybe. Zero, everything, everything everything freezes into into a, a zero degrees Kelvin. But there'll be yeah, you won't be able to. We won't be able to the do big work. crunch, however, says that the expansion will slow, stop, and reverse itself, mm -hmm. and that all the matter and energy in the universe will rush backward, pulled by gravity, to form a super gigantic black hole at the middle of everything that will absorb all time, space, matter, and energy. And some have daringly speculated. That at that point, since it is the, in the exact same situation as it was before the Big Bang, it will recreate the Big Bang. Time itself will eat its own tail like the worm of Roboros, and that uh, 
Now, this is a very Hindu conception of the universe, where the universe is basically just like the wheel of suffering, the endless wheel of, of pain, where thousands of kalpas exist between the Big Bang and the Big Crunch. But it's all, it's either the same universe or an infinite spiral of different universes. Science fiction readers love that, love the concept. I, I read a story by Paul Anderson called Tau Zero, which I recommend to anyone who's you know, a science fiction fan, uh, where people have, uh, because of an accident, they're traveling too near the speed of light, and so many zillions of years have gone by since they left Earth that the only thing they can do to make it back to Earth is to fly through the eschaton point of the Big Bang and the Big Crunch and somehow survive into the next universe and hope that it will be the exact same as the previous universe. You know, Now, you'd think the interposition of their body as it moved through the Big, the big Bang point would mess things up somehow, but never mind that. I'm not sure how you survive a, a supermassive black hole that's the size of all the matter and energy in the universe, but let's say you have an anti-gravity uh, mumble-mumble machine that, that allows you to do it. Uh, Futurama did them one better, yes. where they went forward in the forward-going time machine trying to find a future where the backward-going time machine had been invented. And after discovering horrible futures where humans are run by giraffes, or humans are ruled by giraffes and so on, or yes. uh, uh, tricky sea mammals, uh, they completely circumnavigate the, the temporal universe and come back to the beginning again, having made a mistake and then have to do it a third time. You know, so. That is the most horrible episode, if you think about it. Like, <laughs> like Fry, goes, Fry goes all the way around. Fry goes all the way around to get back to Leela, but it's not the same Leela anymore. Um, uh, that's is it or isn't it? That's a very interesting. Well, concept. I suppose I suppose that's the question, but um, it would seem to be discontinuous with the original Leela, who spent her whole life angry at Fry because he never came back, only to learn right at the end that, or to learn late in her life that actually. Fry was going to be on time, but something went wrong, and she lost. Oh, it's so—it's a sad episode. This is the this but, is the time traveler's wife problem. Every time traveler who marries a parallel copy of his own wife has to suffer from severe metaphysical doubts as to whether it's the same woman or a different woman, and if he's a bigamist or not. So I I think that Fry is a bigamist himself. Well, but then again, then again, I don't know whether the same soul is reincarnated in the next uh, Kalpa of the great turning of the great wheel. Because the Hindus, at least, who believe time is a wheel, uh, also believe in reincarnation, you see. Now, I'm a Christian. I believe in resurrection, but mm. not in reincarnation. Part of that is because I'm a romantic. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, in a brilliant passage, once pointed out that if time is a circle, there's no beginning and no end to any story. And so no story really has any drama to it. Mm. If you fail now, you'll win again. If you win now, you'll fail again. And it kind of doesn't matter ultimately what you do. You might be reincarnated as a demigod next time around, and then if you do something bad, you'll be reincarnated as a slugfish or something. And even if you spend infinite kalpas working your way up slowly one step at a time on the great ladder of the ranks of life in the Hindu universe, uh, there's nothing to say that you won't be reincarnated as a, as a, as a devil or as an apsara or as a, uh, you know, a, a lesser being, as an animal, if you've committed some, some terrible act. So, it's it's not very hopeful a uh, worldview, in, in, according to the romantic viewpoint. That's why the Buddha <laughs> wanted to escape from the wheel of reincarnation and, and, and achieve nirvana and get off, get off the carousel ride. Mm -hmm. So between the Big Bang and the Big Crunch, the Big Wheel, I think, is almost as desolate because at least with the big, at least with the heat death of the universe, 
there's a final, if dismal, end to everything. And all suffering has come to an end, as all meaning has come to an end. And everything turns out to be just a meaningless, horrible void. You know. uh, but in the, in the great wheel of life, the suffering etern- returns eternally. So do the joys, I guess. Uh, you know. But it seems to me to be a terrible, a terrible worldview. Seems now, to be as bad in a different direction. I should mention that between C.S. Lewis and H.G. Wells, one of whom had a view of eternity that was of, of a beautiful dance, that, was, that had meaning beyond meaning, and every part of it was meaningful, and one who had crabs on a beach, <laughs> ending, ending in an ice age, ending in a desolation. Uh, uh, the writer, uh, Olaf Stapleton, also wrote mm-hmm. Far Future Histories. And he wrote one called Last and First Men. Mm-hmm. Now, Stapleton was a communist, and communists believe that history operates by means of evolutionary fallbacks and, and leaps forward. And so he, he depicted, it's not even a science fiction novel, it's a science fiction future history, where there's, there's no characters, there's no plot line, it's just, it's just the history of mankind from now, 1930s-ish, uh, through the upcoming uh, wars and convulsions of the first humans, to the Americanification and the desolation, the, Ameri- the Americanification and desolation of the world government, uh, the fall to the second men, the rise of the second men, and so on through geologic eras. Earth has to be abandoned sometime in the, in the time of the fifth or the sixth men, I forget which, the fifth men, I think, because their psychic powers pull the moon down on their heads by mistake. Oops. And so then they have to occupy Venus after exterminating the Venusians. It's also terrible for them. The sun begins to swell up and they, they migrate to Neptune, which in, at the time it was not known what, what, what a gas giant was, was like. So it was merely thought to be a heavy planet that you could walk on the surface, but mm-hmm. that the gravity was like twice, as, twice that of Earth. Uh, the after another countless calpas of years, the the thirteenth uh, through the seventeenth men rise and fall and rise and fall, and each civilization creates a higher they bio they bioengineer a more sophisticated version of mankind, uh, giving them telepathic powers and a group mind, so that they live in gigantic uh, cells of hundreds of individuals uh, with eighty one different sexes that can all have ecstatic communions with each other with sure. a variety of sexual organs. And they all have eyes on top of their heads so they can stare at the stars in wonder because cracking your head back uh, was, was too much work. So they bioengineered having... having uh, to keep people uh, aware of how much time was going by and to be aware of the smallest in the universe. Well, the Neptunians find out that the sun is going to expand and destroy them. Their efforts to travel to other stars has failed. They, they, they tried once or twice to launch a spaceship into deep space. The crew all went mad because it's too dark and cold out there and there's nothing around. So they just have made life spores that are basically human bio, that they're basically human seeds that can be carried on the solar wind, on the pressure of sunlight, to outer, to outer uh, solar systems. And as a, by way of saying goodbye, the last men of Neptune make telepathic contact with Olaf Stapleton and uh, describe the his- future history of mankind and explain to him that even though life is desolate, you still have to be filled with hope. Now, this is kind of an odd message because it's halfway between the C.S. Lewis vision and the, and the H.G. Wells vision. Yep. But Olaf Stapleton was also a mystic, and he didn't, have a, he didn't have a coherent metaphysics. What he had was a vision that life was meaningful despite the fact that you were going to end uh, that evolution was just going to destroy you in time. That that, that that entropy was going to kill you. you know? 
Now, he wrote a sequel to Last of First Men called Star Maker, where you do find out what the ultimate meaning of life is, which is that God is an incompetent experimenter who's trying to use Darwinian methods to get better and better universes, but he doesn't know what he's doing, and so each universe, as it's created and destroyed, helps him to become a better God, and as he self-actualizes his self-realization, uh, more things will be created better that will make them uh, better. But but not for you, because you'll be no. wiped out yeah. when the sun expands. So that's <laughs> that's the halfway position. Now, if you want to tell me whether I'm that's not sure a desolate... which is worse. <laughs> <laughs> the halfway position is really awkward because he's trying to get the the glory of the uh, the C.S. Lewis vision, the Prerelendra dance, without admitting that there's that there's an orchestra or a, a director, a, a musician, organizing the music. If there's no musician writing the music uh, of the great dance, then it's not it's not music. It's just noise. It's just a pleasant mm. noise. It's just noise. See. Yep. So Wells was startling science fiction because it it undermined the kind of Victorian optimism about about progress because the Victorians were very big on progress. In fact, our modern progressives are basically throwbacks to Victorian, the Victorian worldview, where they well, think things are just going to get better and better. Uh, Wells, even though he, even though Wells was a socialist, and socialists believe in progress, he didn't buy it. Just because it comes later doesn't mean it's better. Evolution doesn't necessarily lead upward. Sometimes it leads you to the Morlocks, hmm. who are clearly worse than the Englishmen, no matter how badly you think of the Englishmen. The Morlocks are worse, you say, because hmm. they're Englishmen and they live underground, and they're, you know, subterranean cannibals. The, the idea of science fiction as challenging these things is, in my opinion, as a science fiction writer, a little naive. Because anyone who has read any great literature has also thought about the ultimate ends of things, the four last things, you see. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, what are you going to believe about the end of time? If you, if you think the end of time is just uh, everything falls to zero, Everything runs out. Death. Yep. Then you're with Wells, you know, and mm. welcome to the, welcome to the Crabby Beach, because that's your that's your future. After passing through the era of the Morlocks, you know, uh, mm. if you're Olaf Stapleton, you think it still has a meaning, though you can't actually articulate it. But if you're Lewis, that's not the end of the story. No. You see, and you're not even the periphery of the story. Because Lewis's point in, his, in, in that long passage I read was that everything that seems to be the periphery, everything that seems to be the edge or the boundary, or an unimportant side decoration, turns out to be crucial and actually is it also the center. Like so, a fractal. Like a fractal. Hmm. So, so. Almost as if God is a mathematician <laughs> and, knows, and knows these complicated mathematical ideas. Or a musician who knows how to make one theme one note, one, one set of notes into a, into a mighty theme that's reflected backward and forward through the whole composition. Now, the other thing I find fascinating about this is that it also affects what you think of in terms of... What you think of the end of time also is a large picture of what you think of the end of your time, you say. Mm. Whether you think it's just gonna, you're just going to end dust and be worm food, or whether you think there's going to be some meaning to it. Now... You would think everyone would be eager to see meaning in their lives, 
but back when I was an atheist, I did not want to be judged by some <laughs> alien super being of whom I had no no interest and no no conception of. No, that's no that's the that's the catch, isn't it? That's the catch. <laughs> if life has meaning, that means there's judgment. That means it has moral meaning. You see, which was also what Lewis was 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 depicting in his in his vision. Because he was wondering why the suffering was necessary. He was asking basically the question that, that uh, uh, John Milton was also trying to answer when he wrote Paradise Lost. He was trying to justify the ways of God to man, which is a little arrogant. I believe C.S. Lewis also coined the term God in the dock to explain how arrogant it is for us to want to put the creator of the whole story, of which we're the characters, into on the trial. prisoner's bar yep. on trial to see to have him answer for where we, where we get put in the characters. As if Frodo is going to go to Professor Tolkien and said, "Mr. Tolkien, Professor Tolkien, <laughs> how come I got burdened with this horrible ring, and and why did I have to go stumbling through Mordor on my aching feet, and it was it was eating away at my brain? I mean, couldn't you have given me a, a simpler task to do, make a smaller ring, maybe that wasn't so, you know, or at least made me the hero so I didn't fail at the end? <laughs> poor Frodo, yeah, poor poor Frodo. He goes back to Hobbiton." And there he is, and his and his friend, as Sam becomes the mayor, and his friends are heroes because they threw they threw out the uh, they threw out the socialists. <coughs> excuse me, the wizard, and the hobbits don't even know what it is that he did. And he's got to sit there in the, in the evenings in the dark, looking at his little fire, warming his little hairy hobbit toes in the, by the hearth, and go, "I failed. I, I gave in to the to the temptation at the end." <laughs> He's looking at his maimed. He's looking at his maimed hand, going, "I failed. What? What does that mean?" Even he has to deal with the end, end times. He gets on a boat and goes away to the elvish heaven of Numen of uh, Valinor. You know, that's uh, that's a metaphor for the afterlife. I'm sorry. The ocean is is in Tolkien is a. Uh, mm. It's like the Red Sea that parts for the Hebrews but swallows the swallows the Pharaoh. It's like the Jordan River that parts so you can cross it to get into the Promised Land. Is a, mm. so. so I suppose the takeaway from this is you have to pick a vision of the future that you're going to stake your being on. I yep. mean, well, you, you, you have to, you're, uh, what is it, as Pascal said, you're in the game, so you have to play. Yeah. The, uh, dice, the dice are already in the air. <laughs> yeah. So which which vision which vision are you going to follow? It's interesting, actually. Um, the Christian vision of Lewis of um, you know uh, the glorious whole dance of the universe and the end coming together with God. Um, the complaint has always been from secularists who have that bleak vision of the future mm-hmm. that. Um, People, people with um, people with their heads like looking to this heavenly future don't care about the here and now, unlike us sort of socialists. But the reverse has always been true. Um, they often care deeply about the here and now, because part of it is getting all of the souls to this heavenly future. But they're also commanded to help their fellow man and stuff um, as part of that process. But the, the, the people with the desolate vision of the future tend to be more willing to sort of crush individuals under heel to make whatever vision they're pursuing, even though they know it ends in 
in nothing in 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 the in the crabs on the beach and even then are uh, not even that the heat death of the, the cra- universe the the crabs go away too the ice winds the snow winds at the end yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just it's such a um and they've bought into this vision of the future and it's weird it doesn't crush them but well here's why here's why they don't really bu- they don't really well, think scientifically <laughs> No, I'm serious about that. They, they call themselves scientific socialists. At least Marx said that he had used science to figure out the, the history mm-hmm. of the future. But Marx doesn't predict what the, what the next step of evolution is beyond socialism, beyond communism. He proposes that the communist man, the communal man, will have achieved uh, the perfect morality and uh, uh, combined, well, he and Hegel and, Kant and, and certain others in his tradition. Uh, in, uh, by which I mean the esoteric tradition, because these guys are, these guys are uh, mm-hmm. like alchemists. They think that the the divine and the human are going to combine at the end of time. That that you are God, and, and all you have to do is wake up to that fact. Now I don't think Marx thought that literally, but he speaks about that in a secular fashion. He speaks of mm. the communal man or the communist man being the perfected form of man. Mm-hmm. So he believes in evolution, but he also seems to think that evolution has an eschaton, has an end point after which no further evolution will take place. But even given that, there's still there's still going to be the heat death of the universe. There's still You're not going to avoid that. Yeah. yeah. Now, I've spoken with some transhumanists who believe that the evolution can be accelerated and that we can become godlike through technology in a remarkably short time. That's that's their that's their their message. That we can actually use technology to overcome the fundamental uh, hindrances of sin and death, or excuse me, sickness and death. They don't believe in sin. Some of them don't. Mm. Uh, and I asked them because I wrote a book on this. My in, in my book, entropy still is going to win. You know, and it, my book was was written from the Stoic point of view. The Stoics said that you should do your duty despite the fact that it's that you're going to die anyway. Okay. Uh, but the hedonists say you should do, you should do what you like because because it's pleasure, but that you have to have an enlightened sense of pleasure, an enlightened self interest. So that you both benefit the people around you while benefiting yourself, which is a nice peacetime philosophy. Mm. Uh, it, it will work. The hedonist philosophy will work, provided there's people who believe the Stoic philosophy who are protecting you. <laughs> <laughs> the same way the hobbits can live peacefully, provided there's rangers in the wilderness willing to sleep on the ground and fight and fight Nazgul with their with their swords and knives. Okay. Mm. Uh, but I said to them uh, on a uh, public debate board, I asked them a few questions about about the heat death of the universe. And one of them said, oh, science will find a way to reverse entropy in time. And I said, why do you believe that? Uh, is there a scientific experiment that you performed or some observation on which that is, that is based? No, that guy was uh, someone who believed the Olaf Stapleton view, the star maker view of the universe. He had a mystical view of the universe that was optimistic, despite the appearances of total universal nighttime coming. That the, that the infinite nightfall of, infinite, of endless cold is coming. Mm. And he just refused to believe it. He just said, oh, we'll, we'll find a way around it. We'll find a we'll way figure to, it out. to escape the universe and get into a nicer universe that's bigger or something. You know? um, and I just thought, well, okay, well. Stephen, back, you, Stephen you Baxter writes books up? like that. The Zeely sequence is an amazing yeah. sequence, and it's very far future. But it also has this far future science fiction is quite interesting. Because even if you believe things are going to get better, there's also the question of, are the remote descendants of, human, of humanity going to be human? Uh, 
uh, Arthur C. Clarke, I think, if I read him correctly, says no, they're not. They're going to hmm. be evolved to a condition that we can't understand any more than apes understand us. We're not going to be able to understand the Superman. Uh, Stephen Baxter has his zeely not really be the good guys, if I, if I read him correctly. But don't quote me, because I'm not... I haven't read all the, all the works of his sequence. Uh, other people who have dealt with the far future, some have done have been more frivolous than others. Uh, Heinlein, for example, doesn't deal with the remote far future, but he does propose that uh, Lazarus Long, his one immortal man, will live long enough to see the entire galaxy civilized. And by civilized, he means that everyone lives basically in a peaceful situation where men mind their own business and everyone has an orgy whenever they like, uh, including finding a time machine and going back and sleeping with your mom. So people indulge sure. in sexual fantasies to their, to their heart's yeah. content. But in the Heinlein universe, there's no higher beings. The, the, uh, the superhumans that were briefly encountered, the superhuman aliens that were briefly encountered in uh, uh, the, uh, uh, I can't remember, the Methuselah's children, Heinlein's uh, hero, Lazarus Long, says he went in and shot them to death with a handgun. So Highland has no, no use for gods. There's no higher beings that humans cannot overcome. How cling on he does, them. however, say in both in uh, 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 Starship Troopers and in Have Space It Will Travel, in, in two different main characters both say that mankind will have to overcome any alien species we encounter if they're hostile until such time as, as we get defeated by someone who's tougher and meaner than we are. Which yeah. is a very Darwinian, it's Darwinian's view of yeah. the universe. It's, it's Life is a jungle where the strong survive and the weak fall by the wayside. The only problem with that view of the universe is that no one is strong forever. Strength wanes. Age happens. You mm. Entropy wins. The Isaac Asimov, in a short story, did have his AI computers being asked whether entropy could be reversed. And that the final computer, uh, created by the super-far humans of the super-far future, does continue to ponder the question because it's unanswered after the human race uh, perishes and, and uh, is extinct until it finally figures out the equation that can solve the, the, the uh, uh, solve the riddle and answer the question. And the last line in the, in the story is where the AI computer says, let there be light, and it creates the next, <laughs> it creates the next universe after it reverses entropy, which is go. cute. Yeah, really shallow. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But it, well, but it's also but it's also the big wheel. So there's your choices, friends. Yeah. The big wheel, in which case, I'll, I vote for I vote for the Buddha, okay? Because I don't want to stay on the wheel of suffering <laughs> forever. Or the big crunch, where you where the uh, the uh, all the all the universe turns into fire and collapses backward in on itself into a crushing uh, pinpoint, like that one criminal who was caught by Goldfinger and put into a car compactor in the movie Goldfinger and gets mashed together, you know, with the goal he took. So that's that's your future. We Stoics call that the ekpyrosis, the idea that the universe will, will, will disappear in a universal fiery conflagration. Or the cold ending, the, the heat death, where there's, there's snow, proton decay, and darkness. Those are your choices for the secular worldview. Well, but or you could be a little mystical about it and maybe believe in the Olaf Stapleton view that something nice might happen that we can't foresee. Yeah, that there might be a kind of a mean god who will make something useful to him. Who you knows? I, I think basically he was. I think uh, if I read Stapleton correctly, he was kind of a Gnostic because I see Gnostic. I'd see Gnostic flavors both in Heinlein 
with his Thou Art God, as he says in Stranger in a Strange Land, and in C.S. Lewis in Childhood's End, having it be that, uh, that the uh, humans evolve into super beings that we can't comprehend. That, that Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke, I'm sorry, I said the, I said the exact wrong name. <laughs> I, said, I said the opposite name of what I meant. Hmm. So. Or you can have Lewis's vision of the cosmic dance. Which where where life ext- actually makes sense, which is an extrapolation of uh, the end of Revelation, I suppose. But yep. I think a consistent one. Now, not only is it consistent, but even if we're wrong and we believe life has meaning and we conduct ourselves as if our acts are being judged, the chance that I will pick your pocket is less now that I'm a Christian than it was when I was an atheist. True, because I was a very honest atheist. I'm sorry, I did not lie, I did not steal, I did not cheat, and did I kill? But I did that out of my own sense of personal honor, which was, which was, which was, in other words, my pride. Well, pride wears out. Pride can be bent and broken, you know. But if you think you're going to be judged, if you think that life has meaning, you think there's a moral core to life, and also you have more fun, you know. So even if it's false, our the, the Lewis view, the the, dan- the the cosmic dance is better than the the crabs on the beach. <laughs> the I, I big agree. Red sun, the big I red agree. Sun. What are you looking for? I mean, seriously, why bother protesting uh, if if people are being treated unfairly in your generation? If a hundred years from now it's going to be forgotten, and a thousand years from now it's going to be nothing, and by the year eight hundred two seven hundred one, you're going to be an Eloy. You're going to be a food animal, being eaten by the very poor people you were trying to save here in the modern day, <laughs> as they have their terrible revenge. Yep. So. Well, you know, on that cheery note, thank you everybody for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And thanks for joining me, John. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me.